The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. And this is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of justice and freedom. Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., outlining the principles of the beloved community, the goal ultimately reconciliation, justice, reconciliation, sisterhood and brotherhood. I am very happy to have in the studio with me two, two sisters, uh, Manisha Mernoush and Hanan Al-Zubaydi, and uh, they're going to help me host our program this morning. We have uh, an exciting event coming up February 3rd, uh, Saturday from two to five it's the u.s saudi coalition bringing peace or war and it's brought by the organization called uh, roots of conflict and that's going to be at portland state uh, there's information uh, about the detail of that on on the website kboo.fm slash beloved community and speakers coming today are going to be three speakers who are going to be at that event uh, are going to be talking uh, with us this morning on the radio katherine Shakdam. She is a geopolitical analyst, and she's going to be, uh, she's on the phone with me from uh, the UK. Uh, she's going to be first. And then we also have um, um, Scott Bennett, who is a former U.S. Army officer. Uh, he's going to be coming to talk about the, the PSYOPs. We're trying to get the big picture uh, out of all of these dots that we're connecting. And then Aisha Juman is a Yemeni activist, and she's going to talk about the situation uh, that is in Yemen uh, right now, the famine, uh, the war. Uh, what, what are the roots of this conflict? That's the, the whole idea behind this. Hanan and, and uh, Manisha, welcome so much tell me about uh this conference itself roots of Confer uh roots of conflict um tell me about a little about the organization um well so the organization is helping us host this event um and they're bringing a bunch of panelists to come and really educate the community about about what's going on okay and uh they've had a couple of events already there's one i think in seattle and uh and then this one's coming in in portland that's correct so. yeah that's yeah, correct. yeah and so uh why is this an important event well, I think that what's going on in Yemen is a humanitarian crisis, and we're seeing it happen. And I think with any humanitarian crisis, it's important to know what's causing this so that we make sure that it doesn't happen again. And if we don't look at the causes and what's contributing to it, then we're really just providing a Band-Aid fix for a very huge problem. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and then uh, the point is our ultimate goal is world peace. And uh, this, um, all these events that are happening, they are for uh, awakening people and uh, making um, people, making sure that people are aware of what's going on. And um, I really, uh, um, um, I'm grateful to uh, Ruth for um, Ruth of uh, Conflict for um, um, kind of arranging these uh, conferences. And um, the main goal is just giving information to people. Because we don't really get uh, a, a lot of clear and good information necessarily from the mainstream media, always, do we? No. <laughs> no. 
And I wonder, why, why do you suppose that is? Um, I think that there's a narrative that we try to pass on, and um, sometimes when things come up around the world, they don't always fit into that narrative, so it's easy to leave it out of the mainstream media. And uh, also, but first of all, I wanted to thank Cable and you uh, for doing these programs and uh, these uh, awakening programs. They're really good, and I always listen to Cable. Uh, so um, I wish the rest of the media would do that because um, keeping people in dark doesn't help. Finally, they will wake up and they will see the truth. And that's what we're about. We're about hearing the diversity of voices, uh, and out of that is to, is to try to discern what the truth is. We're work, we're working on getting a phone call into uh, Catherine Shockdown from the UK, and when that happens, we'll get Catherine in. But I also want to mention uh, some of the other speakers that will be uh, at the conference on February third, two thousand eighteen. The title again of the conference is U.S. Saudi Coalition Bringing Peace or War, and this is going to be at the Lincoln Performance Hall. And uh, so that is going to be February. 3rd and we're very excited we just got word that Catherine is on the phone uh welcome welcome Catherine well thank you very much for having me I'm glad to have you here and I want you to uh, be introduced to um Hanan and Manisha they are helping you'll meet them uh in person when when you come here uh, as they are they are hosting hi Catherine wonderful hello it's a pleasure I wanted to get started. I, I appreciated very much your book, uh, Tale of Grand Resistance, that you just wrote. And, uh, and and I want to take a quote and, and help you expound on this, or let you expound on this. You write, at its very core, Yemen's war is an imperial war, a neo-colonial conflict which seeks the enslavement of a nation for the sake of control. Uh, that's your quote. Why? Why? My question is, why are the Saudis trying to control Yemen, Yemen and, and who's helping them? Um, but there's many layers to this. So I think the most obvious one would be for geopolitical reasons and natural resources. Um, so if you just look at the geography of Yemen, um, where it's situated, then you understand that anyone, any power that we didn't just have control over Yemen will have an opening onto Asia, Africa, and then, you know, if you move north, onto Europe through the, the Suez Canal. So, of course, Yemen is very important. Um, the second thing is that, and something that we don't talk uh, about often, is that Yemen, contrary to popular belief, is actually a very wealthy natural resources. So not just water, uh, but as well in terms of, uh, you know, agricultural uh, uh, potential, and as well in natural resources as in gas and, and, uh, and crude oil. So I know that many people, including the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, have um, claimed that there was no oil, in, in fact, in Yemen. That is simply not true. Uh, you know, many experts have come forward and explained that there's many great, um, you know, reserves in Yemen. They, they basement reserves, so it's more difficult to accept. They're still there. And Saudi Arabia is, is essentially running out because it's running through its reserves and it's looking to expand its hold, you know, over, over all resources. Um, you know, for very political reason, because then it's, uh, it's a source of wealth for the kingdom, and it allows its, its powerful lobby to um, to seek control, you know, over certain policies, for example, especially in Washington. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's only logical and I think natural, you know, considering the nature of the Saudi regime to, to want to control its neighbors. It's, it's doing it already, you know, in Dubai, Kuwait, uh, it tried with Qatar, it didn't work out. Um, and, you know, other countries such as Egypt, um, Sudan, Morocco, it has great, you know, financial weight in those countries and it has tried to do the same thing in Yemen. Now, it's more complicated in Yemen because Yemen is a little bit more unruly um, and they are, you know, religious uh, issues that the kingdom kind of came across. 
um, as well as a desire to be independent from foreign uh, meddling. So yeah. the Yemeni had to be tamed, and the kingdom thought that rule was a good idea. Okay, but can you mention religion? And uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Wahhabism and how this plays into the conflict in Yemen. Well, Wahhabism, you know, um, there's this idea, first of all, that you know, Yemen was somehow conquered by you know, Shia Islam very recently. I mean, we have to, to, to kind of give it context. Is that Shia Islam was always part of North Yemen. Um, it's always been a reality since the 6th century, so it's not something that just happened. Um, Yemen is a very pluralist country, so you had many different schools of thought, including you know, Christianity and Judaism. Um, so it's a country that has a wealth when it comes to religious pluralism and religious tolerance. So now the Saudi have created this binary, you know, for, for the past, I think, five to six decades, where it's only Wahhabism that can survive and that all other school of thought have to be disappeared so that the, you know, Al-Saud monarchy would be able to exert control um, and basically, you know, kind of have a setup that, you know, resembles the crusade. Um, if we really want to make an analogy mm. where, you know, uh, the religious have control over the masses absolutely, you know, by screaming holy war uh, and, and, you know, and, and divine order. And they have tried to do this in Yemen by essentially taking over the, the Ministry of Education for decades and indoctr- indoctrinating, um, you know, young minds. And it has worked to some extent in the South but a great deal because South Yemen was, um, you know, formerly under communism and so religion was illegal. And so... Southern South Yemeni came to discover Islam by way of Wahhabism. And then in the north, it has been a bit more difficult because they, the Ismaili, Twelvers, and other Sufis have fought for their religious freedom. Uh, which is why, by the way, you know, there's been such um, uh, sectarian undertones to this conflict, but it's only coming from because we have to absolutely understand that the Yemeni are not sectarian in nature. Their culture the whole tradition is based on the very principle of religious freedom. And this is something I think that gets lost in translation a lot of the time because a lot of our media and experts have always highlighted this sectarian, you know, uh, note without giving it proper context. All right. Thank you. Um, uh, Manish, you have a question too. Uh, hi, Catherine. This is Manish. Hello. And, uh, thank you. Um, in your book, A Tale of Grand Resistance, uh, you talk about hoodies. Would you please elaborate and uh, be, um, are they I talk about what? I'm sorry? Hoodies? Houthis? Yes. Houthis. Yes. <laughs> and uh, they're the key. Uh, are they the key to Yemen's resistance? Would you kind of elaborate on that, please? Okay, so as I was explaining, um, the Houthi are key to, to an extent in that, first of all, they're a tribe from northern Yemen and they have suffered themselves a great deal from state oppression. So in that sense, they understand resistance, they understand the need you know, for political self-determination and the right to basically express your opinion and hold state officials accountable for the action. Um, now, what we need to understand that the Houthi are not per se the resistance as a whole. What they have done, they have architected, you know, a resistance movement in which people could then, you know, come in, join in and actually support this idea that Yemen is a sovereign nation that has a right to its political future. And again, I think that this is misunderstood because there's been a desire in mainstream media to portray the Houthis as, you know, those rebels that seek to destroy Yemen's republic. But that's not what they're trying to do is actually empower you know, um, the constitution and people so that they could make their own choices and not actually revert back to a system where you have nepotism, where, you know, foreign mandling is tolerated. So I think that the Houthi have been misportrayed, misrepresented a great deal, and more, most importantly, misunderstood. 
because again they have reduced the free movement down to um, you know a, a sectarian issue down to a tribal issue and it's not it's something much bigger and I would say that they inspired the revolution so in that sense yes they are absolutely um, important and key uh, but the resistance movement could survive should they just decide to leave so it's not just down to this one group in Yemen it's much bigger than that Thank you so much. Hi, Catherine. Um, I was just Hello. talking to John earlier about I got your book in the mail yesterday and I've been reading it all night. Um, and I just wanted to know, I've been learning so much from your book. Um, what do you want Americans and other people to know or research about the Yemen conflict? What do you want them to take away about this conflict? Um, I think the most important thing is that they need to understand that what is happening in Yemen is a great, grave injustice in the sense that um, famine, hunger, and you know, diseases have been used as a weapon of war. And I'm sorry to say, but the last time this was tolerated was under Nazi Germany. And I'm hoping and praying that people will wake up early enough so that we don't repeat you know, grave mistakes. That's the first thing. The second thing would be to stop believing what mainstream media is writing about Yemen, because I have to say again, a lot of the time it's, it's politically biased. It's religi religiously biased. Um, and it's not a reflection of reality. And people need to understand that when we talk about democracy, sovereignty, and you know, political self-determination, we need to believe this on principle, not when it's you know, pertinent to the political conversation, not because it's easy. So we have to understand that sometimes, even if we don't like the direction that certain countries are taking, we have to admit that they have a right you know, to, to the choice that they make and that we have to empower them and accompany them in those directions even if we don't agree but you can't dictate a tone and this is what is happening right now in Yemen is that the Yemeni are not allowed to choose for themselves millions of, of people are standing you know to die if we don't do anything so we need to stop believing everything that the media are telling us we need to do some research and understand that a life is a life and you know too many lives have been wasted on the Saudi fire for anyone to actually stand for it so it's not a case of being politically correct. It's a case of, I'd say, you know, I think not losing our humanity in this war. And, you know, the U.S. has helped the Saudi because they, they have allowed weapons to flow to Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is misusing its power and its money by murdering people. You know, there is no other way to look at this war. It's not about right and wrong anymore. It's about our humanity. So yeah. we need to wake up and, and I think exert pressure on officials so that they feel accountable to what is happening in Yemen. Because we need to open our eyes to, to this human catastrophe. We can't just let it go. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Catherine uh, Shakdam is a geopolitical anal analyst. She is the author of um, uh, the recent book, uh, A Tale of Grand Resistance. She's going to be in Portland February 3rd, 2018 for the conference U.S.-Saudi Coalition, uh, Bringing Peace or War. Uh, I, thank you so much uh, for, for this book and for your word and look forward to meeting you uh, next month. Thank you. Me too, me too. I cannot wait to see you. <laughs> this is the Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck, and I'm excited to have with me in the studio Hanan Al-Zubaydi and Manisha Mernoush. Uh, they are helping to be hosts for this Roots of Conflict conference uh, that is, again, coming up February 3rd uh, at Portland State. Up next, we're going to sp speak with former U.S. Army officer Scott Bennett. Uh, this is the Beloved Community. <laughs>
This is the beloved community. My name is John Schuck. On the phone with me and with me in the studio, first of all, in the studio with me is Hanan Al-Zubaydi and Manisha Mernoush. They are helping us host this event, the U.S.-Saudi Coalition Bringing Peace or War, Saturday, February 3rd. And one of the speakers is going to be Scott Bennett. Uh, he's on the phone with me. He's a former U.S. Uh, Army officer. Scott, welcome. Very good to be with you. Thank you so much. Scott, I want to, uh, we've got a few minutes here, uh, 10, 15 minutes, uh, but I want to I want to give you a chance to give a big picture here. Uh, connect some dots, if, if you could, uh, in a in a short period of time of of. Syria, Saudi Arabia, the United States, this global war on terror, what is it really? Well, I I think it's one of the greatest deception operations in the history of humanity. I'll start with my personal background. I was a Bush appointee from 2003 to 2008, and I then joined Booz Allen Hamilton which was a defense contractor, and I was given a top-secret SEI clearance, one of the highest clearances in the country. And then I was given a direct commission into the Army to become a psychological warfare officer. And I went in and worked as the liaison officer for the U.S. State Department Counterterrorism, uh, U.S. Special Operations Command, and then was assigned to U.S. Central Command as a terrorist finance analyst, tracking down the money supply, the banks, the money laundering instruments, the bad guys, the donors, the diamonds and the toothpaste, everything you could imagine that bad guys use to buy bombs, bullets, IEDs, and finance terrorist operations against American troops and our allies. So I saw firsthand how they, how they were doing things. I studied uh, every aspect of uh, militant uh, Wahhabi uh, Islam, uh, and the strains of it, and I, I noticed one of the biggest things that are just coming out right now, and that is terrorist financing from abroad, and my report, Shell Game, which I sent up to the U.S. Congress, uh, really shows all of the Clinton Foundation connections to terrorist financing, Swiss Bank, Union Bank of Switzerland, HSBC, Liechtenstein, Credit Suisse, a whistleblower named Brad Birkenfeld who had 19,000 bank accounts that he brought over and tried to give to the Obama administration, Eric Holder, Department of Justice. Uh, and one of the great scandals that uh, probably your radio station hosts are the are only ones to really hear this, uh, present company excluded, is that the Swiss banks that were financing a lot of this terrorism from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, uh, the Clinton Foundation coordinated to cover up and hide. They made a deal with Switzerland. In exchange, they threw this American whistleblower into prison. And WikiLeaks cables, which Brad Birkenfeld had had uh, been sent, uh, proved in 2008-2009 Hillary Clinton and the State Department made these deals. So it hasn't come out yet on Fox News. Uh, but we've been pushing it, and I've sent a report, you know, for since 2012, really, to the White House and members of Congress, proving all of this. So that's how I started looking at the terrorist financing and how all of these operations were being paid for, because uh, that's how you stop it ultimately. And and Russia actually did that in 2015. They started focusing on the financing and, and uh, shut down a lot of the operations that way. But that's a, an overall connect-the-dots, sort of a Machiavellian what's-really-going-on analysis that leads right back to 
the Wahhabi terrorists of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and whatever you want to call them, they're just different flags of the same personality, <laughs> have been used by the U.S. CIA, the Israeli Mossad, the Saudi, Arali Saudi Arabian intelligence, CIA have trained them. They've been sent into Libya. Uh, they were the ones really that destabilized Libya under the Clinton administration as State Department. Uh, they were then used uh, with weapons sent up into Turkey and sent into Syria. And the, the Saudis really have been using the ISIS uh, mercenaries, their believers, to go up and set up a, a Wahhabi Sunni state to oust President Assad, which incidentally, you know, ironically, you never hear any of this on the mainstream media, but you do when you're in the military intelligence circles. Assad was one of the greatest defenders of Christians in the world. So was Vladimir Putin. They were not beheading Christians. Uh, that is pure propaganda. And they, they were really essentially trying to keep the Middle East together. And if Assad had been ousted, it would be even a worse human catastrophe right now. You'd have hundreds of millions of refugees in Europe. Um, we see the damage that's already been done there. Uh, so Assad and Russia and Iran really came together and shut a lot of that operation down, which I think every American really should be grateful and beholden to, because they've, they've stopped this hemorrhaging, which sadly a lot of people in the United States have been responsible for. And specifically when I look at my reports as a terrorist finance guy and brought all of this material, submitted it in a, in a report, people can go to shellgamewhistleblower.com. The book was Shell Game by Scott Bennett, a U.S. Army officer, military whistleblowing report to Congress. So I submitted it as a whistleblower. And Dianne Feinstein and Bill Nelson, about 100 other senators and congressmen, got it. Bill Nelson of Florida and Senator Feinstein conspired to hide it and cover it up because it was too explosive. It showed what you you know many people may know, and that is men, many members of Congress have Swiss banks. They, they have investments in this war. There are investments in the military-industrial complex. Scott, so, I, want to, I, want to, I, wanted to, I wanted to jump in just for a second. I want to make yeah. sure to clarify something. So when um, the United States says it's helping to fund the moderate rebels in Syria, what do you make of that? Well, you know, number one, of course, there are no moderate rebels. That's a cloak. That's a camouflage. That's an attempt to say we'll pretend we're moderate so we get dollars and, uh, you know, weapons and grenades and machine guns. And then we're going to give them to our Wahhabi cousins uh, or put on our new T-shirt and uh, call ourselves the White Helmets, but they don't change any stripes. So. You know, when the when the American intelligence, the American media, and, and all of the CIA, and all of these people are calling uh, the, the American forces fighters of these bad guys and the moderate rebels our allies, that, that really is a disservice to the American citizens because it's not true. And Russia has said that, and really they're quite honest with the facts of these guys. Al-Nusra, a lot of these groups that we refuse to condemn as terrorists, we're now having to admit they are terrorists because they're beheading little boys. They're, you know, doing rape gangs. They're doing the most obscene things that human consciousness is capable of. But yet we've been backing them. We've been providing the no-fly zone areas. We've been providing the safe havens. Those are all documented truths, and it's, they're very uncomfortable truths because it shows the American people that the American military uh, and, and really the American politicians that are supposed to be in charge of the military have been letting the letting these bad guys run roughshod just because we don't like Assad. Now there are other very important politicians, uh, such as Senator Dick Black, who and Tulsi Gabbard, 
who we've briefed on a lot of this material, who went to Syria and have determined that we've been on the wrong side of history when we've been against Assad because he's the only person keeping the country together. And it's the Saudi Arabians that have been responsible for training and deploying and recruiting and paying for all of these operations. So the Syrian moderate rebel uh, name, it's, it's a hoax. It's a lie. And it's insulting to the American people because their tax dollars are being used in funding this endless militarism, this endless war on terror that does nobody a disservice. We've shattered our reputation in the world. We've shattered our treasury in the world. We've made the world enormously unstable. I'm surprised that Europe has anything to do with us because of all of these, I mean, millions and millions upon millions of Muslims and Wahhabis and North Africans and Libyans and all of these people flooding the Mediterranean and Mediterranean and then going into Italy and France and Britain and Sweden. And it's just caused chaos. So I, I think the world is shifting. I think Russia, Iran, Turkey, and Syria, and China have really established a new confederacy to stop the Saudi Arabian uh, uh, financing of terrorism. I think Donald Trump was smart enough to recognize that. He's in a little bit of a pickle. Uh, he seems to waffle right and left, and he's he's sort of controlled, and I like the guy, but he's sort of controlled by a lot of bad advisors. And the other thing is Israel has been pushing a lot of these bad guys because their agenda is to destabilize the surrounding regimes. Now, that's not in America's best interest because when you destabilize the regimes, that's when they start flooding up into Europe and all sorts of chaos starts happening, and, and look at Libya. But Israel sees, since their military policy uh, of the 1980s was the Yoded and on plan, their goal has been to destabilize all these country, countries, and they've been providing hospitals and, and weapons and, and uh, all sorts of support for the, for the ISIS guys as well. Scott Bennett, my guest, a former U.S. Army officer, he's going to be speaking um, about these topics and more at Portland State on February 3rd for the U.S.-Saudi Coalition Bringing Peace or War. And uh, Hanan, uh, Hanan has a question for you, Scott. Hi, Scott. Um, so I, I was reading a little bit about you, and um, I saw that um, you've suffered a lot, and you've even gone to prison as a result of your courage. Um, would you do that again, and could you tell us a little bit more about that? I think it's similar to Joseph being cast into the prison of Pharaoh, and his <laughs> brothers you know, cast him down. That, that really is my experience, because I went in to do my duty and serve my country, and I was a go-getter. I didn't go into the military because I needed a job or was lacking personality. I went in because I had a doctorate, I had multiple languages, I had a, you know, the administration under my belt, and I saw the war is needing smart, good people that knew what they were doing. So I went in to become a PSYOP officer, and I, I started doing things the right way and finding a lot of uh, corruption, a contractor fraud. My boss was Dove Zakheim, who was the comptroller who had misplaced or stolen $2.3 trillion. So that was part of my assignment is to go down to U.S. Central Command and investigate what was going on with the money supplies. And that's when they invented these false charges of me uh, filling out a housing form improperly, and they called that making a false statement. The same thing they charged Michael Flynn with. So they charged me with 18 U.S.C. 1800-1. I thought it was a test. And the next thing I know, I'm thrown into a bus and sent to prison. Now I fought and appealed and tried to get the whole thing resulted. Uh, but in that prison is where I met the whistleblower Swiss bank banker, Brad Birkenfeld. Now many people say that was a planned operation. There were white hats. There were intelligence people that guided you there, which may be the case. 
But had I not gone, I would never have discovered 19,000 bank accounts and their connection to the Clinton Foundation, Eric Holder, Lanny Brewer, Loretta Lynch, uh, uh, the, the the contractor firm, firm Booz Allen Hamilton Dove Zach I'm Roger Zachem so yeah I, I you know I would I'd have to do it again because I, I did it to serve my God my country my constitution when I wore the uniform I took an oath not for pleasure but for endurance fortitude suffering wherever the truth led me and I've never when when I discovered all of this stuff specifically around the Swiss bank financing of terrorism through these Saudi Arabian uh, Wahhabi donors and banks. Me reporting it to the government was my duty. Their doing nothing was treason. And I will never stop until I get all of these people that were given this material to answer for their treason, to answer for their failure, because American kids are dead, wounded, maimed, traumatized, because they were blown up or killed or, or damaged when they didn't need to be. Scott, that's the Half question I want to I ask you. Why is it that, we're, that you get stonewalled? What, what, what is, is this U.S.-Saudi coalition so powerful that, that no one can stand up to it? I think it's a mix of cowardice and weakness in the politicians. We're witnessing a sociological devolution, if you will, in America. It's absolutely sickening what's happening to politicians and people largely. Look at, I mean, Google and all of these groups turning, you know, left-wing and cowardly. It's almost like a mental, I mean, breakdown is happening in this country. And that explains the lack of will, the lack of, I mean, strength and courage. There's cowardice. Perhaps there's a tinge of people over the age of 65 in these political positions that are entering, entering an area of dementia and delusion. And I don't say that flippantly. I say it very uh, medically, if you will. There, there is a serious mental, emotional problem in this country, especially around the politicians. They like to pretend they're game show hosts with plastic hair and bleached teeth, but they are the opposite of what real statesmen, real leaders are. And I have to say a lot of people in the military are that way. A lot of people, a lot of the senior leadership of the military are all talk and no action. So it, it's a very sickening, depressing, frightening thing when you see the, the fear and the, and the refusal to investigate this. And I've, I've walked into Congressman Mark Dussolny's office, my congressman in California, and I sat down and videotaped for an hour my presentation of this material to his staff in 2016 before the election and he refused to do anything with it he refused to uh, to investigate it he was a democrat so he was covering up for clinton but that's treason because this is not about you know a, a illegitimate parking place or saving a purple tree frog this is about terrorist financing on the highest levels in the u.s government in saudi arabia that is currently being used to fund war operations. Our men and women in Syria are in violation of the laws of war, the United Nations, United, I mean, all of the, the, the traditional legal principles behind war. We're in violation of because we're not supposed to be in Syria. They haven't attacked us. Uh, we don't have a, a, a license from Congress to, to, we haven't waged war. So these operations that have evolved out of 9-11 have really turned us into a police state and have, have, have turned us into a, a massive offense to the rest of the world. And the hope was Donald Trump was going to retard and restrain that and pull us away and be more aligned with Russia uh, to, to, to finish this ISIS campaign, to stop regime change, to put America first, to focus on our own people, our own economy, and get off of this 9-11 uh, war juggernaut, which has consumed us, 
but Donald Trump, you know, ha- hasn't been firing on all cylinders. I like him. He's, he's done some good things, but he's being he's being controlled and given a lot of bad information. And you know, his stance against Iran and his his desire for what seems to be another war with them is very very dangerous because the rest of the world, I don't think, is gonna is gonna tolerate it. We seem to be deluded into thinking whatever we want to do, we're just going to bully our way through and the rest of the world is going to go with us. I, I don't think that's the case. I think uh. the rest of the world, as we've seen, is changing. Scott Bennett, um, uh, we're, we're just out of time uh, for today, but uh, you have given us uh, quite a bit of, of thought, something probably <laughs> that everybody has something to disagree with uh, as well as, as agree with. Uh, you are God. Scott Bennett is going to be uh, February 3rd uh, at the Lincoln Performance Hall at Portland State, uh, part of the conference U.S.-Saudi Coalition of Bringing Peace or War. Scott, I look forward to meeting you then. Thank you so much. I appreciate being with you. You're listening to The Beloved Community. Up next, we're going to speak with Aisha Juman. She is a Yemeni activist. She has family in Yemen. Uh, she lives in, in Seattle. She, we're going to be uh, talking via phone with her. She's going to be talking specifically about the suffering that is going on in Yemen uh, in, in no small part due to the United States' uh, support of uh, Saudi Arabia uh, by selling its uh, its arms, and and I understand intelligence as well. So we're going to get back with Aisha Juman uh, next on The Beloved Community. Stay with us. My name is John Shuck. I'm in the studio with Hanan Al-Zubaydi and Manisha Marouche, and they are helping us host the uh, U.S.-Saudi Coalition Bringing Peace or War Conference uh, coming up February 3rd uh, at Portland State, uh, presented by Roots of Conflict. On the phone uh, with us um, is Aisha Juman. Aisha, Hanan, and um, Manisha, and I welcome you. Hi. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you guys, and thank you for the invitation. I was wondering if you could, um, first of all, talk, um, I, I'm so sorry about your family. C- can you tell a little bit about about your family in, in, in Yemen and what they're experiencing now? Yeah, everybody in my family is in Yemen. Uh, my parents and my uh, brother, they live in an area of Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen, that has been hit almost daily uh, by airstrikes. Uh, the largest bomb that was uh, dropped on Yemen was in that area. Um, I go to sleep at night not knowing uh, if I wake up the next morning and they will still be alive. Uh, of course, if the food prices are just extremely expensive uh, as well because of the blockade on Yemen. Uh, fuel is almost uh, is very scarce and is extremely expensive as well. Uh, medicine uh, cabinets around the country and even at pharmacies um, are also empty because the blockade is not allowing medicine to come in. Uh, so there are times when I have to send medicine from here uh, to my family. It's, ex- it's very expensive. And the sad thing about it is that uh, this is a family that has someone that can support them for the medications, so, my sister, for example, who has uh, breast cancer, 
and was on tamoxifen to stop, you know, breast cancer from reoccurring. The tamoxifen was not available in the market anymore uh, by the time I got it to her, which is also uh, an ordeal by itself to send anything to Yemen. Um, it's, first of all, it's expensive, and then there is no guarantee it would get there in time if it gets there at all because of the continuous blockade on Yemen. Uh, she had a reoccurrence of breast cancer. And that's just one person um, of, you know, the millions of people in Yemen. I know people who have died uh, because they have not been able to medically evacuate from Yemen. And again, when you have the hospitals, um, over two-thirds of the hospitals had been uh, destroyed by the Saudi uh, airstrikes. Um, as I said, there is no medicine, there is no fuel, uh, kidney centers have closed, and um, you just name it. Everything is in shampoo, and there are a lot of suffering in Yemen today because of it. And um, you mentioned the blockade. Is, uh, is that the most, is that the first order of business for Americans who are waking up to this? Absolutely. Uh, you see, the airstrikes kill, but they're not going to kill the whole population. Yemen imports 90% of its needs. Uh, whether it's fuel, whether it's food, whether it's medicine, all essential needs are imported. 90% of them are imported. And the blockade is killing silently, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. We know that last year alone, 13,000 people died because they couldn't medically evacuate from Yemen because of the blockade. We know based on UNICEF, uh, statistics that a child in Yemen dies every 10 minutes because of preventable diseases that they didn't, they didn't used to die from because of the lack of medications in Yemen. The reason we have the largest cholera outbreak in modern history in today's world where we should not even have cholera is because of the blockade. We have no fuel and all the water tanks and water stations had been uh, bombed by the Saudis. And so the virus was able to uh, transmit easily in the population. And, you know, couple that with malnutrition, Yemen has the largest malnutrition in the world today. There are 22 million people of 27 who are in need of immediate humanitarian assistance. There are 19 million people who need at least one meal a day. There are 17 million people who are at credible risk of famine today. A lot of these people are dying and nobody is counting them. We're talking about millions. Jan Eagleson, who is the head of the Norwegian uh, relief work said that Yemen is experiencing famine in biblical proportions. Yet that's not being talked about. All the ports in Yemen are locked and blocked. All the airports are closed. For example, Sana'a Airport has been closed since August 2016. Imagine that. Imagine a country where your major airport is blocked. Imagine a country where you cannot get in and out unless you are approved by your enemy. Yeah. Anybody who travels in and out of Yemen, they have to submit their name to the Saudi to approve them. That's why we're not hearing so much about Yemen, because the Saudis would not approve 
you know, journalists going into Yemen and exposing what they are doing. Aisha Juman, um, international report from Amnesty report that there are war crimes that are committed in Yemen, yet we don't hear about it. Of course, society would not allow people to go in. They actually booted BBC reporters from a plane going to Yemen. So when you have that strict of a blockade, it doesn't just, you know, food is not allowed, medicine is not allowed, essential goods are not allowed, but then also reporters, international reporters are not allowed in either. Aisha Juman uh, is our guest. She's a Yemeni activist. Um, uh, she's speaking with me on the phone from Seattle, speaking with us. Also, Hanan and uh, Manisha are here uh, helping us host the Roots of Conflict conference that's coming up February 3rd. And Hanan has a question for you. Hi, Aisha. Um, I just I wanted to know, like listening to all of these things, I think a lot of people are probably feeling pretty helpless. Um, what is something that listeners can do for the people of Yemen? Are there organizations that exist to help them? What is something that you recommend that people can do to help? The biggest help people can do is to call their representatives uh, and their senators to demand that the U.S. stop supporting Saudis. Saudis would not have been able to do anything in Yemen without the U.S. support. So they are providing intelligence, they're providing refueling on the air while they are doing airstrikes in Yemen. And they're also assisting in the blockade. The Saudis don't have a powerful navy that can prevent vessels from getting into Yemen. It's the U.S. that's enabling them. So I'd like first for people to make sure that they call their representatives, their senators, to demand that the U.S. stop supporting the Saudis and to lift the blockade. The person that has done so much for Yemen is Senator uh, Todd Young from Indiana. He has single-handedly worked miracles to get four cranes. The Saudis destroyed the four cranes at the largest port in Yemen that receives about 80% of the goods, essential goods to Yemen uh, in August of 2015. And they did that because they wanted to slow down the unloading of ships to Yemen. And the U.S. government, with our taxpayers' money, purchased four mobile cranes to replace the ones that the Saudis destroyed. And guess what? The Saudis didn't allow those cranes to be installed in Yemen, and they put them in Dubai for over a year. And it was Senator Todd Young who worked tirelessly for over a year to make sure that those cranes go into the Hodeida port so the unloading of ships can be easier and faster. The Saudis just approved that this month. So we're hoping by the middle of this month that those cranes are going to be installed in, in, in Hodeida port. The other thing is they can also support organizations that support Yemen. For example, because of the blockade and all that's happening in Yemen, I established with a Yemen relief organization. And what we do is we uh, collect contributions and send the money to Yemen to purchase food baskets. Food is extremely expensive in Yemen now. We have so far in six months provided food baskets to 4,000 families in Yemen that last them for at least a month for a family of five. So the website is YemenFoundation.com. If people are interested, they can do that. They can also contribute to Oxfam. They can contribute to uh, UNICEF, any organization that is doing that. I would like also people to make sure that they sign um, 
petitions that came in about Yemen uh, to make sure that there is a force behind our demand to lift the siege and stop the continuous killing of the Yemenis. They've been living for over a thousand days with daily airstrikes by the Saudis, daily airstrikes, and they have nowhere else to go because there is also a blockade. So these are some of the things. They can also write editorial, uh, uh, you know, they can make interviews. So we need to inform the public. But the Saudis have 73-plus public relations firms working for them. And these firms are manipulating and making sure that the, the, the Yemeni side of the story is not out there. A lot of the media, even those who want to write about it, they are, you know, facing tremendous pressure from public relations firms, from a lot of people who are working for the Saudis. We have a lot of powerful people today working for the Saudis, whether from the Republican Party or from uh, the Democratic Party. If you look at the list of those who are now consultants for the Saudi, it's, it's appalling. It feels to me that the Saudis are determining our foreign policy, not just on Yemen, but in the Middle East. Although that policy that is being uh, you know, put out today by the U.S. government is actually counterproductive and puts the Americans at risk. Aisha uh, Juman, uh, we're speaking with on the phone. You mentioned uh, the U.S. role uh, in Yemen of uh, of intelligence, of, uh, of arms, of even uh, assisting with the blockade. Would you call what is happening in, in Yemen a war crime, and is the U.S. has responsibility with that? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, there, I'm not the one who is calling that. There are a lot of uh, international organizations that have documented war crimes that are happening in Yemen. The fact that there is a blockade and using famine as a, you know, a method of war, that in itself is a war crime. I mean, you don't need to know international law to understand that this is a, a war crime. We have the Lehi uh, law that says if the U.S. government is assisting another government and that government is committing uh, you know, violations of international law and war crimes, then the U.S. government is responsible. And we already know that that is the case. On top of that, every time the U.N. has tried to have a commission to investigate facts in Yemen, the Saudis have blocked that. And guess who is supporting the Saudis whenever they try to block an international investigation, independent in investigation of war crimes in Yemen? It's the U.S. government and Britain. These two countries have three times stopped the international community from establishing an independent investigation into war crimes in Yemen. If the Saudis do not think that they're committing war crimes, why are they stopping international investigation of war crimes in Yemen? Wow, good question. Um, Manisha, you have a question? Uh, yeah, you mentioned that uh, journalists are not allowed to Yemen. Still, uh, are there things that the mainstream media uh, know and they are not telling us? Do you, can you elaborate on that, please? Uh, the mainstream media in, in the U.S., unfortunately, they're not, they're not putting Yemen on the map. Uh, it's possible that the PR firms, the public relations firms, are working very hard to make sure that that is the case, and I suspect that is the case. 
60 Minutes actually did an excellent job uh, recently in which they, um, you know, featured Yemen and what's happening in Yemen. And that was the first time in three years that a major U.S. media had talked about Yemen. But guess what? In their 10-minute segment about Yemen and what's happening in Yemen, they never said a word about U.S. involvement and U.S. role in what's happening in Yemen, which I think is shameful. I mean, they, I uh, admire them I, for what they've done. And that this was possible without U.S. government support is actually uh, non-professional. You have people like uh, Thomas Friedman, who writes at the New York Times all the time. He's been going to the Saudi Arabia and coming back writing very flowery, uh, you know, and articles about the Saudis. And I'm like, and when people called him on that, it's like, what about how about Yemen? He became very defensive and started using, you know, vulgar language uh, to respond to that. For me, when people resort to that, that, they mean they have lost, and they know they cannot professionally um, respond to criticism. So there are a few outlets that talk about Yemen, but overall, uh, the major U.S. media had been very quiet. Um, and I, again, if you look at who is in the PR firms working for the Saudis, I'm sure many of them are, are also in uh, major U.S. media. Well, we're trying to break the silence um, here on the beloved community and KBOO. Uh, Aisha Juman, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Our time is up, but we look forward to seeing you next month, uh, February 3rd at Portland State. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, featuring Yemen. Thank you, Aisha. And I want to thank Hanan and Manisha for being uh, with me today. This is the beloved community on the second Friday at 9 o'clock. I'm John Shuck. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 